Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer if you could please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Since we've come to the end of the day, let us ask our blessed Savior for the forgiveness of all the sins we have committed knowingly or unknowingly, willfully or not, in any way we have offended him. O oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love, I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, do penance, and to amend my life. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker tonight graduated from the Gregorian University in Rome, Harvard College, and Yale University, where he received a Ph.D. in Medieval Studies in 1988. He is the founder of Urbi at Orbe Communications and Inside the Vatican Magazine. He's also a respected journalist, author, and lecturer throughout the Catholic world. He is also an advisor on the board of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I wasn't sure I might say this tonight, but it was Dr. Moynihan who first came uh, to speak at St. John's when we were a very small group. Some of, us, some of you remember our small group there at St. John's. We had a room that I think it legally sat about 25, right? And, um, and uh, we would regularly pack uh, 60, 70, 80, sometimes people hanging out the windows. And it was Dr. Moynihan that was there to give a, to give a, a, a talk on Pope Benedict XVI during his visit here in the United States. And he came to the, for the first time and uh, he said to me afterwards, Sabatino, this, what you have here, cannot remain here. This should be in every parish throughout the United States and beyond. And I still remember that evening because I counted as one of those fundamental turning points for the Institute of Catholic Culture because I began to think for the first time, is it possible that we could serve more people and open ourselves to be able to go wherever Christ uh, led us to go? And so is his encouragement and his insight and his sense of hope in the future of the church, which led us to be able to serve now no longer 30, 40, 50, 60 people, but uh, tonight 180. I think we might have as many as 200 here tonight with us. And, uh, and like I said, we're Father Groeschel, we're expecting 1,500. So uh, we're very indebted to Dr. Moynihan, and I ask you to welcome him tonight. Well, it's a great honor to be here, and Sabatino is doing great things with his program here. And it's nice to see you all here, and we just have a few minutes to deal with questions which are eternal questions. And by that I mean uh, that even in eternity, I imagine these questions will occupy us until forever. So we can't complete a discussion of secularism 
and what it implies as an alternative, which is the sacred, the holy, in a brief time. So what I will give tonight is a brief sketch. The essential struggle of our time, Pope Benedict has repeatedly said, is the struggle between the secular and the sacred. A type of secular vision of the world which seems to be increasingly predominant, which is now becoming militant and seemingly wants to remove the alternative vision, what we would perhaps call the sacred vision, uh, to make it illegal, to proscribe it. So the first thing I wanted to do was to give a brief history. I do want to mention in the middle of that history, Pope Celestine, bring us up to our own time, and then describe what Pope Benedict is doing in our time, and then take questions. The, the ancient world was suffused with a sense, a vague notion of the sacred. This idea of a completely secular world, a world without anything sacred in it, a world without anything divine in it, a world without anything transcendent in it, is a notion that, ap that appealed to some of the Greeks and to Lucretius and to some of the Romans. And they were very pragmatic about their exploitation of their gods. But the overarching ambiance of all of human existence in primitive society and in classical society was a world in which the sacred was present and was important, was prayed to, was supplicated. The origin of the Christian church in this world was a strange phenomenon because it claimed that there was a particular sacred with a particular face, with a particular name that was what St. Paul said to the Athenians, the hope that all of you have had and used different words to describe is now present to you. And that hope was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the intersection between the secular and the sacred. His incarnation was clearly into this saculum. And a brief note on what, what the word means. Secular comes directly from the word saculum. Saculum is a Latin word which means this age. We use that word all the time in the old liturgy, and we refer to it, for example, per omnia secula seculorum, which is a strange phrase. For, per, for, omnia, all, in the plural, omnia secula, for all ages, seculorum, of ages. And it's a superlative, meaning really it's transcending all ages of ages. And it's for all ages of ages and more. Or it's a way of saying this world, this age, and all ages 
is under the Lordship of Christ, is under the dominion of God. It's ultimately going to be revealed as God's kingdom. But the problem we have with this age is that the revelation of that kingdom is not yet. And that's why, essentially, that the story of Christ had to end in the passion and the crucifixion and the death, which is actually still to this day one of the great reasons, uh, great stumbling blocks for the Jews, for example. They say no possible way that a Messiah, the Lord of history, could have entered into history and could have died in the middle of history and not brought about in a very public way the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel that they would be ruling from Jerusalem in a secular way the entire world. Now, the Roman Empire for 300 years or for 283 years from 280 years, from 33 AD until 313, so 280 years, the secular power of the Roman emperors, which was in some ways also a sacred power, persecuted the sacred power, which was the church, which was the body of Christ continuing in time and space for ages of ages, for all ages of ages, per omnia secula seculorum. So the secular power had a relationship with this sacred institution which began as an attempt to destroy it and say this emerging reality must be eliminated because it is a challenge to the religious view of our, of our time and of our world. And the challenge was not that they believed in a God, but they believed in the God, in the only God. And so they were persecuted because they could have no other gods. And there are terrible incidents that you've been studying, I believe, where people were killed because they would refuse to take a pinch of incense and sacrifice it to Caesar as a god because they did not want to deny Christ as the God. They didn't want to say Caesar is close or even we'll just pretend that he's God. No, they said this is so impossible and it's so wrong that we refuse to do it and we won't even offer a pinch of, a pinch of incense and then they were executed. These are the martyrs of the church. Constantine in 313 ended this period and we entered into a type of a period which we remember vaguely now, but for hundreds of years it was the predominant model of the world, which is a fusion of the sacred and the secular. That is the Holy Roman Empire. Constantine made Christianity legal in 313 and then Theodosius in 375 made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. There were tremendous struggles. The Romans in their elite classes both embraced this but also rejected this. And the great story of Julian the Apostate, 
360, 361, 362. He tried to roll back the clock. He made Christianity once again illegal and tried to restore the uh, pagan gods, and then he died, and that experiment ended. But the Romans, in a sense, didn't easily convert to Christianity. And the empire finally faced one of its great challenges when in 410 Rome was sacked. It had now become Christian. And a lot of the Romans said, the sacking of Rome reveals that your Christian God is not the Lord of history. That there are just secular forces that are completely out of his control. And it was at that moment that one of the great books in our tradition was written by the great, anyone know? St. Augustine. And he wrote his greatest, perhaps his greatest work on political theory. <laughs> the City of God. And that's a book which essentially has one premise, that God's city is growing in the world and will eventually triumph in spite of all the apparent defeats that it suffers. But there's also another city, the city of man. And that will grow alongside the city of God until the end of time. And the church, that's not de fide, that's not part of our catechism. But the church has always tended to believe that that vision of Augustine holds a great truth about the reality we live in. That we are never surprised if the city of man is powerful. And by the city of man, we mean the city of pride, the city of avarice, the city of, of uh, lies, the city of power politics, the city uh, not of humility, not of generosity, which is the growing city of God, the city of charity, the city of hope, the city of love, which the church is in the world to bear witness to as a present reality but a future reality which will be much greater still, which will be fulfilled. The centuries which followed, there emerged various styles of secular, sacred connection. And in Byzantium, there was a government where the patriarch of Constantinople was right beside the emperor of Byzantium at all public ceremonies. The emperor would be crowned, the emperor was orthodox, the emperor was Christian, and this system continued down until the fall of Byzantium in 1453, and its legacy continues on even in, a, in, a, in an attenuated sense in the Greek Orthodox Church and in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church. In the West, the fragmentation of the West prevented the unification of the Roman imperial crown ever occurring again. Rome never reemerged as a single power in the West. And there is a famous historian who said that if you want to understand all of European history in one phrase, all of European history is a long nostalgia for Rome. And you can trace through the European history 
a series of events where people tried to restore the Roman Empire. And one of the last great attempts was Napoleon, who then asked to be himself crowned once more. And it was only 200 years ago, not so far. And in an odd sense, in a kind of a transmuted or transfigured or, or disfigured way, even the Nazi attempt to have a thousand-year Reich and to have all of this classical architecture was in a way a longing to restore that Roman grandeur. Now, in the West, despite the lack of a Roman Empire which unified, there was a unifying culture of the elites which was Christian and Catholic and Latin and it was present in each of the major powers in the West, in Spain, in France, in Germany, and in England. And this, I, I, some of you may be upset that I'm being so simplistic, but I'm just trying to give you a sketch. And I think it's a fair sketch, and we could become, uh, I think on this canvas, we could then read all sorts of other stories. And, uh, but the, the large sketch is this. The Wars that were fought in those centuries were predominantly uh, wars due to um, personal motives and familial motives, but not to religious motives. And the religion generally acted as a, as a break against uh, the excess violence of wars. There was the truce of, of the church that would be called, and there was... Uh, sanctuary that would be created so that no one could uh, break, the, uh, break into a church where someone had sought sanctuary and seized them. There were certain sacred spaces and sacred times which punctuated the secular reality. And that's why we call it Christian culture. And the breakdown of that began really with the Protestant Reformation. And in each of the areas where there was a prince, the prince decided that he would impose the faith of his, uh, of his choosing. And then the standard bearers of his army would fight under that standard, and so there were wars of religion. And they went on for over a century. This was traumatic for Europe, and I think it's like um, hard to describe, but what a century-long war does to you is uh, shape your psyche in a profound way. And the church was, I don't know that history, the history of that period well enough. There may be experts here, but the attempt made at Trent to reconcile and, and, and then kind of build up, in a sense, a, a bulwark or a redoubt for the church that was more or less the church of the ages, in, but it reduced now to southern Europe, uh, somehow failed in its effort to remain at the leadership of the scientific and intellectual establishment of society. The church in the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s, into the 1500s, and into the 1600s remained the intellectual leadership. There were priests, there were monks, geneticists, etc. 
But starting in the 1700s, because of the breakdown in the Christian unity of the West, the emergence of a mentality we call secularism in reaction to a hundred years of religious war, that is, a slogan that people seized upon, and we find it to some extent even in the Founding Fathers here in the United States. We must not have religious wars. The believers are so impossible that they will fight for their faith to the death. Therefore, we must have a secular space. The state must be the secular space. The state then will assure the peace that the religions could not assure. This was the handover of the leadership in establishing the space where humanity could have its uh, development and its uh, fruition separate from the holy, separate from Jesus Christ. It was aside from that. It was another place. This is the beginning of secular humanism. And the basis of it is, and the, and the reason it had such power, is that too many people had been killed for too long. And so a lot of people hung their heads and said, you know, they've got a point. And in fact, we still do that today. That's still the argument. Religion causes too much strife. Therefore, let's turn things over to the secular humanist who will provide a space where all the religions can have their beliefs, but none of them can try to impose any of those beliefs because that will cause violence and that will return us to that terrible time. And that vision of the world, which we call the Enlightenment vision, we call it the vision of the French Revolution has become predominant in the West. Now the interesting development in the last 200 years, and this is what, what the Pope, what I am saying, I believe, is at the center of his understanding and at the center of what he's doing. He's look, he knows all this history, and what he recognizes is the last phase of this development has created a secular humanism which excludes God. And what this is the, the great phrase from his Caritas in Veritate. A humanism which excludes God is an inhuman humanism. Okay. That is the essence of what Benedict is trying to argue. That's the debate he's engaged in. What he's saying is that if you take off that next level of human aspiration and vision and experience, which is the contact with the divine, the contact with the holy, the contact, the connection with God, whether it be by prayer or by grace or by prophecy or by whatever, a sense of presence of the divine. If you say that's completely unreal, that doesn't exist, there is no God, what Benedict is saying is that by the people who say that say we reduce us to the pure human and that's because we respect the human and we respect the human, we don't want him confused or deceived or going off after false dreams like the communists said. We don't want them to have the opium of religion. 
they say we're humanists and we want humanity to be enlightened and to be free and to be stand tall but what Benedict is saying is the result of this is inhuman the result of this is that man in attempting almost like Prometheus to stand without God without any standard without anything sacred without any boundary he is the master he can decide this is the vision once that comes to be the vision anything can be justified and we've started to see that in our society that's why we're in the predicament we're in because no one can say that's wrong and the first great example of that is abortion in the old days when I was a boy it was so clear that this wasn't right that this was a an innocent life growing and the womb was the most sacred place and to invade the womb and to kill the child was a barbaric abomination we used to call it you can't say that in America today because it's legal and uh, it's been legalized throughout the West and the first place to legalize it was the Soviet Union I believe 1927 Prior to that, for century upon century, despite all of this other stuff I've been talking about, it always was considered illegal to perform abortions. Now we're entering into another moral issue, which is the question of the nature of marriage. And without a concept of human nature as destined toward a reasonable end, and having sexual genders that have a certain integrity if all of that is thrown aside we will have the society that we are developing now Benedict thinks that this will lead to worse things he's repeatedly said over the past 20 years that we will if we can produce monsters you know he's often spoken of genetic engineering he's spoken of that for at least 20 years he says genetic engineering is going to be the thing that will really be the capstone on the horrors of our time because we will have these mixtures of animals and men or computers and men or computers and animals and men and women and we will have different types of beings that never existed before and they will all be justified as man's knowledge and man's power and, the, and this type of humanism uh, enabling us to penetrate into ever deeper recesses of reality but there are realities that we should not seek to penetrate and Benedict is saying that we need to defend ourselves against the inhuman by returning to the transhuman or the superhuman or the divine now the strange thing about Christianity is that the face that we look at the face that we look at is that one Jesus and there's a reason that Benedict has taken to writing about Jesus Benedict's essential weapon to fight secularism is to return to Jesus because Jesus is both God and man 
And again, this is a mystery. Mystery by its very definition cannot be fathomed by the human intellect. We can go on reflecting on what that means and we can say, I understand a little bit and a little bit more, but we will never completely understand. But what this is, what Christian humanism is, is a humanism which speaks of a man who is a perfected man, perfected divine man. And as such, the first of many brothers and sisters. Christianity is humanistic, but it's a sacred humanism. It's not a secular humanism. It's a sacred humanism because it says, yes, we have bodies. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we have diseases. Yes, we have fallen. But there is a model that will conquer all of the negatives and will put a face on each of us, which is the face that we have uh, intended for us from the beginning of the world. And that this a message is a more liberating and a more humane message than the message of secular humanism. Now, whatever secular humanism, whatever else it is, it's certainly limited to this age. Everyone would agree. The saculum is bounded by time and space. The saculum, this age, this time, this world, we would call it, is a passing world. And these are the questions Augustine raised in his uh, confessions where he talked about the nature of time. The very fact that we are in time means that we have our existence in a series of moments which pass away. Each of us was once a child, but that person no longer is here. Was a very nice person, filled with hope. But that person, and each of us will be at some future time lying in a box. And we won't be here any longer. The moment that we have of our existence, which is, and which we can enjoy is the present moment, and that moment is ever receding rapidly into the past. Even the time that I started that sentence is already gone. The fact is that man is a mixture. He is so close to being nothing that it's laughable, and he's so close to being divine that it's awesome. And that is signified by the incarnation of Christ who enters into this passing world and into this fallible body and he suffers in this body and he passes away. And then he's risen in a glorious body. And this is the human hope that could make us able to bear all things, all suffering, all doubt, and this could give the type of generosity of heart that creates people like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. In other words, this humanism, this Christian humanism, goes far beyond calculation. It goes toward the divine. It's like an arrow directed towards the divine. And in examples of the Christian saints, 
we see that it doesn't lead inevitably to what the humanists say are crippled people or deluded people. It leads to people who are expansive, who embrace the rejected, who are kind, and who are kind to the marginalized, who build hospitals, etc. And the, this humane world of modern secular humanism is a world of economic calculation. It's a world that's going to calculate what's the cost of caring for old people. What's the cost of having more children? And it's going to say we can't, have, we can't bear this cost. It's not a world of overwhelming love. So the battle of the Pope against secular humanism is the battle of our time. The source of his inspiration and the model of his humanism is Christ. The Pope, in an unprecedented way, is writing books about Jesus. He's written two. The second one will be coming out in March, March 13th. And then he's going to be working on another. On the infancy narratives. So, Celestine. There was a Pope in the, in the 1290s, just before the year 1300, who resigned. He's the only Pope in history who resigned. The Franciscans at that time had hoped that the corrupt church of that age would be healed and reformed by what they called an angelic Pope. They, wish, they prayed daily that instead of fighting over lands and horses and city-states and revenues and gold, the bishops and the cardinals and the nobles would be on their knees and would return to the simplicity that was typified by St. Francis. St. Francis who lived in the early years of the 1200s, 1181 to 1226. So now we're in 1294. Actually, we get to 1292. The pope dies, and for two and a half years, they can't elect a pope. So Celestine is a monk in the mountains, and he writes to the cardinals, you must choose a pope. And they say, okay, we're going to choose you. <laughs> and he said, no, I don't want to be pope. And they say, you must. And so they brought him down, and they crowned him pope. And he was pope for about five months. And then he resigned. He tried to do a few things. He tried to make a couple of reforms, but he found himself surrounded by powerful church officials who refused to change anything. He was later declared a saint in the church. He, he died just a couple of years later, and he was succeeded by the greatest uh, medieval or the, one, the, the Pope in the, middle, in the Middle Ages who made the greatest claims for the papacy, Boniface VIII. There was a rumor that Boniface VIII in the palace was in the wall behind the uh, bedroom of Celestine was whispering, you must resign. <laughs> and that Celestine was saying, I think there's an angel telling me that I need to resign. <laughs> But uh, 
Boniface took over and we went on into the rough times of the 13th century and uh, we leave sort of the, the, the high sunny decades of the 1200s with the Franciscans, the Dominicans, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, and we start into the decades of Occam and Scotus and then we have the Black Death in 1348 and I think they say also the climate of Europe actually cooled down and that from about 1050 to about 1300 there was about 250 years of warmer weather and after 1300 it got a little bit colder each year until the 1500s which uh, the 1300s anyway uh, canonized Celestine and they never got really an angelic pope. What did they get? What did they get immediately in the middle of the 1300s? Well, they got Avignon. The pope didn't even stay in Rome anymore. He went to have parties up in France. And uh, they were there for 70 years, from 1307 to uh, 1377. And that's when Catherine of Siena was calling on the pope to come back to Rome. Be a man, she said. Um, and then from 1378 until 1415, there were two popes, and then, and then for a year, because one stayed at Avignon, and uh, or was re-elected, was re-elected by the French. And uh, then they finally, for a year or so, had three popes, and then they had a council, and they deposed all three and elected another one. And that's when the idea of councils being more important than, than popes came to the fore which gave a big boost to the type of thinking that just a few decades later led to the Reformation. This is now 1415 and Luther is 1517. So in that century they canonized Celestine and they never got another angelic pope. Dante places Celestine in hell. He says, colui che ha fatto il grande rifiuto. He who made the great refusal. He refused to carry out his duty. He refused to carry out his mission to the end. He resigned. The only pope who ever resigned. Now, uh, there is, in parenthesis, there are scholars who say that that reference in Dante may possibly not be to Celestine, but 80% of scholars say that is his judgment of Celestine that he wasn't a saint, but that he's in hell for resigning. Now, Bennett, we've had a number of very holy and remarkable popes just in this increasingly secular age, and I think it's rather remarkable. And every one of them has done something wonderful, and I could name all of them Leo XIII, and then we, uh, Benedict Fifteenth, who was the prior Benedict to this Pope, who during the First World War told the Europeans, don't totally mobilize and engage in battle because you think it's going to be a month or two, but it's going to be much worse. He was a peace Pope, and he turned out to be absolutely right. And out of that war, of course, and the ruins of Europe at that time, came Mussolini, who restarted the calendar in Italy. He wanted to go back to the to the Roman fascist, once again nostalgia for Rome. The communists who overthrew the czars and overthrew the Russian Orthodox Church, killed the bishops, imprisoned the priests, 
destroyed thousands of churches. I've been in Russia many times, and all I found from that period was churches which had urinals installed in them. That was the great fruit of the communist revolution with regard to the church. And then in the center of Europe among the Germans, the rise of the Third Reich, which wanted to destroy the Jews, but also wanted to destroy the Christians. There's no doubt about it. That's the heritage of that First World War, which Benedict tried to stop. Pius XI tried to rebuild Europe. Pius XII said, let's try to avoid the rise of these. He was, he was opposed to Hitler from 1923 on, because he, he was in Munich in 23, and he saw Hitler at the push in Munich in 23. And he said, this man is a dangerous fellow. Um, so these books that say Pius XII was Hitler's pope are completely propaganda. And I'm going to say that word because uh, Benedict XVI may be the most propagandized pope of all. That is, the attacks of the media and of the secular humanists, let's say, against Benedict are depicting him as a type of a quasi-Nazi, because he's got a German accent, are absolute lies. I've met him many times. Uh, he's helped me put my jacket on in the middle of winter when I left his office. He's a gracious and gentle man. He's much more like Heidi's grandfather <laughs> than he is Heinrich Himmler. Uh, uh, he is a German professor, which does give him this slightly uh, detached quality. All German professors have that. They're a little bit ivory tower. But he's a brilliant mind, and the battle he's fighting is a desperate battle. And he, like Celestine, didn't really want to be pope. And I just wrote an article where I was informed by another cardinal that in 1997 he met with Cardinal Ratzinger and he was the prefect of the Vatican Library. And Cardinal Ratzinger asked him all sorts of questions about how to run the library. And he, and he said, I'm going to be taking over soon. And he asked John Paul II to make him the Vatican librarian for him to finish his career there because he wanted to study and to write as any good German professor would. And in, fa in fact, the Pope refused to allow him to do that, kept him on at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And uh, from that post, when John Paul II died, Benedict, who did not want to become Pope, was elected. And becoming Pope, except for Celestine, is a job you can't get out of. It's until death. So he's got a life sentence. <laughs> All right? But there's an interesting connection with Celestine. On the 4th of July this year, so 4th of August, uh, 29th of August, it's seven weeks ago the Pope went to the tomb of Celestine. And he took his Episcopal uh, pallium and he took it off. That's the sign of his authority as the Bishop of Rome. 
and he put it on Celestine's tomb and he left it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Moynihan. All right, Dr. Moynihan, we're back. So, okay, a couple questions, yeah. Um, what were the changes, Dr. Moynihan, that um, uh, Celestine was trying to institute? Uh, he was trying to make sure that monks followed the rule of their order. And so if they were, there were a lot of monks traveling around, they were supposed to be staying in their monasteries. So I think he tried to impose a stricter rule on monasteries. Um, I think he wanted to restrict the sale of church offices, any use of funds to uh, receive Episcopal appointments. And uh, I think there were some liturgical matters that he wanted to uh, simplify. He was a monk himself. He, he wanted to bring the monastic view of things and the prayer life of monks more into the daily life of the church. And I think in Rome at that time they resisted that. Dr. Moynihan, uh, I think we would all agree that there's kind of a long, slow slide in uh, American society today uh, with our uh, religious values being opposed by atheists, radical feminists, and homosexuals. What would you prescribe as the, our prescription for opposing this? Well, my work is writing about the church, and this is my effort in this battle. I think to rebuild the church, to build up the church, to support the parish priests who are really under tremendous criticism, anyone in a collar these days, to support local bishops, to uh, try in your family life to hold, you know, the foxhole. Don't let yourself be overrun by the internet and by the television. You know, set limits. Try to uh, have human contacts and Christian contacts with your fellow parishioners and your neighbors so that you have a sense that you are weaving a network of uh, civil society that's strong and it's tight and it's um, reinforcing. And as the media blasts through here and a new movie blasts through here or a TV show or a new, you know, idol, I mean, in our culture has thrown up idols like Madonna as a clear contrast to Our Lady Mary, the Mother of God, who is called the Madonna. And we, we you know, they, they make these things continually. So when they do, try to build up a texture of life, starting with the family and with your friends and with your parish. Archbishop Chaput has now come out with a, with a statement um, three days ago. In, um, in Europe, he read a, a long essay, which will probably become famous, because it's um, a new departure now for the American Episcopate about how to react against this culture. And you can look on the internet, and you can get this latest essay by Archbishop Chaput, C-H, 
A-P-U-T, who's an Indian, by the way, an American Indian. And you know what they say, white men speak with forked tongue. <laughs> but, in, but Indian tells no lies. No, Chapu is a solid uh, bishop, and he could rise higher. And uh, the manifesto that he delivered three days ago speaks to your question. What he eventually comes up with is finally on certain points you have to resist or not go along. You might have to disobey a law. I don't know how close we are, but uh, we're getting closer. Can I just add one, one thing to that? Um, maybe a little self-serving, but the Institute of Catholic Culture, what can you do about that, about the situation we're in today? We are in a battle, and we're in an intellectual and moral battle that is going to require Christians, like those in the room tonight, to be at the forefront with answers to the questions people are asking. And we better be equipped to give those answers. That's what St. Paul says. Give, be equipped to give a reasoned answer for the hope that is in you. And that is why I've dedicated my life to doing this work. Yes, I could go other places and make more money and so forth, but here's where the battle is. Here's where eternity is. Right here in the basement of this church. I'm wondering what is the meaning of Benedict the Sixteenth leaving his pallium on well, Celatine? Well, I would, like, I would like to ask you what you take from it, because my belief is that he was speaking to us without words. Now, did you ever speak to your kids without words? You did something for them to understand, maybe they need... Okay, what is he saying? I didn't know whether he was giving up or whether he was giving us a lesson. Well, is he giving up? No. No, but he is saying that the situation that Celestine found himself in has some similarities with the situation he finds himself in. I should say the Pope uh, is in two weeks' time, he's going to England. And in England there's two of the leading secular humanists of our time, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, Richard, Richard Dawkins, who has uh, written, written a book called The God Delusion. And Christopher Hitchens was the one who said Mother uh, Teresa did everything she did in order to get more fame and, and glory. And that's why she was wiping the sores on the bodies of dying Indian beggars so that she would be well talked about in the Western press. That shows you the type of mind that some of these people have. They have called for the arrest of Pope Benedict when he sets foot in England. And the, the British government has assured the Vatican that the Pope will not be arrested. <laughs> but this is bubbling along, and you can imagine CNN-style Fox News, you can imagine right now in England, in these days, they're talking, oh, you know, will there be protests against this cover-upper, this head of a kind of criminal institution? And then they're stirring up that feeling. So they say that not too many tickets have been sold or have been picked up by the Catholics, they're not e because Catholics are under pressure in England now. I mean, this thing has been disastrous, this scandal. All of us have suffered enormously from it, and the church has suffered.
the children suffered and the priests suffered. But Benedict is also suffering. And um, he's going forward. Yeah. Yes, I was wondering, you, uh, you mentioned that uh, the reason for the appeal of secularism was this terrible series of wars. Well, how about the, what secularism did for the last century or yeah. so? You know, I had a, an old friend, a man who died, who said to me, God is good all the time. That's all he ever said to me. God is good. I said, well, doesn't this seem to be a sign that God is absent? He said, no, God is good all the time. And these last 200 years are pretty disconcerting. They are filled with laws and with crimes that make us shudder. And uh, recall, really, recall the crucifixion continually. We are, as they say, a resurrection people. I believe that very much. I am, in some ways, a mixture product of the pre- and the post-Vatican II. The, the crucifixion people, or the Calvary people, the old offer-it-up Catholic, and then the resurrection people. Christ is alive, therefore we should rejoice. So, these last two centuries, by creating these secular conditions, which could if we carry another 30 or 40 years forward with these genetic experiments and maybe with the destruction of the environment and maybe with heavy metals and all sorts of strange things in every part of our environment and maybe with lack of fertility of men and maybe with cancers in women and maybe with all sorts of... Maybe people will say, wait a minute, all this secular humanism brought was a nightmare in the end. It looked beautiful. But it's like when you have a dozen donuts and you say, I'd like to eat all 12. And then you eat, like you get through the sixth one. Or the, if you get through 12 of them, I tell you, later you don't feel like eating donuts anymore. <laughs> if we have a humanism that says, give us absolute freedom to do anything we want, to manipulate nature, nothing stops us, to look at all genes as anything can be spliced, to use the earth in any way, to tear it apart and build it up and combine it and shatter it, and remember, with the nuclear weapons, we actually annihilated matter. Let's do it. This is human. We're, we're God, and we can do it. In the end, we will discover that we've gone too far. And maybe, God being good, will return to Zion. Maybe with a little humility, they say, let's, we still would like to be prosperous, and we like to be knowledgeable, but we really want something even more. We want to be happy and we want to be holy. And we want the world to be filled with that. And that will be, when that finally happens, that will be the time of the second coming. Thank you, Dr. Moynihan. Thank you all for coming tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.